Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. Sometimes it's just me, and other weeks I'm in conversation with another rabbi or a Jewish thought leader. All right, welcome everyone. Welcome to week two of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat being stuck in my head nonstop. I seriously can't even read this parshat without rhyming. Just be glad you're not here in the office with me while I'm preparing these materials. So before we start with the parsha, I have a very exciting announcement to make. I am very pleased to officially announce the launch of my new initiative, a virtual center for Jewish learning that's called La'asok. La'asok in Hebrew means to engage or to immerse. It's part of the blessing for Torah study. We talk about la'asok bedivrei Torah, immersing or engaging in words of Torah. And la'asok is a place for just that. It's a liberal Beit Midrash, a virtual house of study, a place to engage deeply with Jewish learning, a place where we as liberal Jews can come together virtually to deepen our connection with Judaism and to deepen our connection with one another through meaningful engagement with sacred texts. In a way, it's an expansion of the mission of this podcast, but moving it to a more interactive platform where we can actually speak to one another. So all of our classes are held virtually. Some of you already know that I've been offering Torah study classes weekly for a couple of months now. And if you take a look at our website at laasok.org, L-A-A-S-O-K.org, you'll see that there are a number of other learning offerings coming up, and there's lots more on the docket. So I'm excited that this podcast is now part of a larger initiative, and I invite you all to check it out. Again, it's laasok.org, laasok.org. Speaking of learning Torah, let's dig into this week's Parsha. We're reading Miketz, and as I mentioned, Miketz is the second of three stories about Joseph. It encompasses Genesis chapters 41, 42, 43, and about half of chapter 44. And this is the parasha that tells the story of Joseph's meteoric rise to power from prison, from jail, all the way to be Grand Vizier of Egypt. He interprets the dreams of the Pharaoh. He lands himself a job, essentially as the Minister of Agriculture and Finance of Egypt. And ultimately, as famine hits most of the world, he finds himself in a position of power standing in front of his brothers. Now, I've just glossed over a whole lot of what happens in the Parsha. There's dream interpretation, there's symbolism, there's Joseph finding his way in Egyptian society as a Hebrew. And if you want more on that, I would invite you to go back to the last two years worth of podcasts on this Parsha. There is so much to talk about. But what I want to focus on today is what happens once Joseph is already in power when his brothers come to Egypt. Remember that Joseph is the one who's administering the rationing of grain for all Egypt. And all of those foreigners, all those non-Egyptians who are also suffering from famine, are now coming to Egypt to procure food. And Joseph is the one who hands it out, or presumably 
decides whether to hand it out. And so when his ten brothers come and stand before him, it presents Joseph with an opportunity he's probably been dreaming about his whole life. I say his ten brothers because the brothers have left Benjamin behind. Benjamin being the youngest brother, the youngest son of Jacob, and Joseph's only full brother. The reason he didn't come is that their father Jacob presumably wouldn't let him come. He's the favorite brother in the absence of Joseph, whom Jacob believes is dead. Now, the last time Joseph saw these ten brothers, they threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery, took his coat and dipped it in blood and told their father that he was dead. So you can imagine that over the last 20 years, Joseph has maybe been dreaming about what it would feel like to get revenge on the brothers who did that to him. After all, they are responsible for the fact that he was sold away. They are responsible for the fact that he hasn't seen his father in two decades. They're responsible for the fact that he was a slave, that he was in prison, that all these terrible things have happened to him. And I know if I was him, I'd probably be laying up at night dreaming about ways to get back at them. We don't know that Joseph was doing that, but we do have a sense that he's been thinking about it from the way he acts when they show up. Which is to say he kind of messes with them. When the ten brothers show up in Egypt, they don't know that they're talking to their brother, but he looks down and he knows who they are. The Torah says, Vayaker Yosef et Echav, Vehem lo hikiruhu. Joseph knew exactly who his brothers were, but they did not recognize him. Then it also says, Vayiskor Yosef et achalomot asher chalam. Joseph, on seeing his brothers, remembered the dreams that he had dreamt so long ago. Remember, these were dreams about his brother's sheaves of corn bowing down to his sheaf of corn. Dreams about the stars, the 11 stars in the sky bowing down to him. Joseph has been dreaming about lording over his brothers for a really long time, and now he has the opportunity. The first thing he does is accuse them of being spies. He says, Miraglimatem lirotet et ervat haaretz. You're a bunch of spies who have only come here to see the nakedness of the land, to find out the secrets of our land. What he's doing is making the brothers grovel. He's making them say, no, no, my lord, we are really good people. We're just here to procure, we're just here to procure food. He's making his dream come true, literally, his dream of his brothers groveling to him. And over the next few chapters, he goes back and forth between being good to them and taking care of them and scaring them. He holds one of the brothers in prison while he sends the rest of them back to get Benjamin. He accuses them of theft. He loads up their packs with all kinds of good things and then also returns their money to them so that they'll think that he thinks that they stole the grain. There's a lot of mind games going on here. Joseph is really playing a kind of a game of cat and mouse, where he's the cat and his brothers are the mice. The story will end on a good note. It will end with Joseph reconciling with his brothers. In fact, he's overcome with emotion. This is next week's portion. And he just can't stand it anymore. He has to tell them that he's their brother. He has to be reconciled with his family. But along the way, it's not always clear what Joseph's intention is. It's not always clear what he's doing. Is he trying to get revenge on them? Is he trying to scare them? Is he testing them? 
We don't exactly know how to judge his actions. Is Joseph doing something praiseworthy or is he doing something condemnable? Now, we've seen something like that a few times, both in the Joseph story and also in the stories leading up to it. About two or three parshiot ago, we saw Jacob and Esau coming back together. Jacob learns that his brother Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men, which sounds like an army. But the next day when they actually meet and reconcile, Esau just runs forward and hugs and kisses him. So we had the same question at that point. What was Esau's intention? Was he intending to come and fight with his brother, or was he intending to reconcile? We saw something similar in last week's Torah portion as well, when the brothers conspired to kill Joseph, but Judah stood up and said, guys, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. So there again, what was the intention? Was Judah trying to save Joseph's life by selling him instead of killing him? Or was he just trying to make some money off of the brother that they were going to get rid of anyway? And so I think one of the questions that the Torah is raising is the question of whether intentions matter. If a person performs an action that is intended maliciously, that is intended as harmful, but it turns out good, how are we as human beings to judge that action? And by the same token, do our own intentions matter? Does it matter what you meant? Does it matter what kind of feeling or intention was behind your actions? Or does it only matter how it ended up? Joseph will give us a sense of his own thoughts on that next week in Parshat Vayechi. At that point, Joseph's brothers are afraid that he's still angry at them for all the things they did to him. And he says to them, Atem chashavtem alai ra'a, Elohim chashva You intended me harm, but God intended these actions for good. In other words, he says to them, don't worry about it. I know a lot of bad things happen. I know you tried to kill me. You tried to sell me into slavery, but God had a plan. God intended it for good. It doesn't really matter anymore. We've talked before about Joseph's optimism. Joseph seems to be able to find the good in any situation, and I think that's a real strength of his throughout his lifetime. It's part of the reason he ends up in the position that he ends up. But I have to tell you that despite Joseph's absolving his brothers of responsibility for their action, I don't fully agree. I don't think that this positive outcome absolves the brothers of responsibility. They still sold their brother into slavery. They still did something condemnable. And by the way, the rabbis agree. When they're talking about Judah coming up with this plan to sell his brother into slavery instead of killing him, they say, this is from the Eitz Chaim, it is not praiseworthy to be less wicked than one's companions. That is to say, your action was still a bad one. You still sold your brother into slavery. Despite the outcome, despite the fact that your idea wasn't as bad as everyone else's idea, you don't get off the hook because things didn't turn out that bad. So that's one side of the coin. Intentions do matter, despite outcomes. Ends don't justify means. But the other side of the coin, and what I think we can learn from Joseph in this scenario, is that our bad intentions also don't have to condemn us. Our malicious actions don't shape us forever. We can grow and we can learn that there are better ways. 
Joseph's brothers did sell him into slavery. They can't change that fact. Now, fortunately for all of them, that action which they intended for harm had a good outcome. The way to redeem it, though, is not to hope that everything turns out okay. The way to redeem it is to do tshuva, to examine our past wrongs and own them and learn from them and do it differently the next time around. And in that sense, I agree with Joseph that there is a good outcome here if everybody learned from their mistakes. I know I've said this before, but Judaism never expects us to be perfect, and that's why I think it presents us with these stories of these deeply imperfect ancestor hero characters. Because when we watch them learning from their mistakes, we can see ourselves in them. We can see our own malicious intentions, we can see our own jealousies and rivalries and desire for revenge, and we can see our own capacity to learn. When we come back next week, we'll bring the story of Joseph and his brothers to an end, and we'll also bring an end to the book of Genesis. Thanks for listening, everybody. 7-Minute Torah is a production of La Sok, Sacred Texts, Modern Meaning. If you enjoyed this program, please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah. For more information about upcoming learning opportunities, go to laasoka.org, L-A-A-S-O-K dot org. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Thanks for listening.